Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, Rebuilding Broken Lives by Beth Kidd, and it was based on Nehemiah 1, 2 through 10. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. I think the part that I relate to the most this morning about Nehemiah, the reading from Nehemiah, is that it, he was terrified. He was scared to death because I... I for some reason, I've spent almost 50 years of my life running around the streets in Roxbury and Lowell, and I never am afraid. But when I stand in front of a congregation, I usually have to, have to say, okay, God, <laughs> give me some courage here. But I bring greetings. I bring greetings today from Place of Promise, um, which originally was started in, I started originally in Dorchester and then moved it up to Lowell. Um, because we could get twice the amount of houses in Lowell for the same price and a little less political pressure um, from the city not to, not to be Christ-centered um, because we, we are determined that Place of Promise will remain Christ-centered and so we, we don't get any government support um, and sometimes get some government opposition because we are and will always be um, Christ-centered place because that's where the answer to brokenness lies. Um, I am going to talk about what Nehemiah can teach us today about rebuilding broken lives, um, about carrying the message, about being on a mission for God. and he told us, I, I, I actually have 10 words, 10 P words. And at the risk of not getting through them all, because I tend to be a storyteller, and I, and I tell a lot of stories because I've been doing this for, with the Lord. The Lord's been doing this through me, put it that way, for the last 50 years. And um, 50 years ago, my husband and I got married, and God moved us to, to Austin. I thought we were just going to Boston for a, a couple of years while he went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and then we were heading back to Philadelphia, my beloved city where I was born, and instead um, he saw fit to keep us in Boston for all these years. I, I um, thought after about the first 20 years that maybe he wasn't taking me back like I thought he was. I'm a, I'm a slow learner, you know, I held, I held on to that hope that I was going back to Pennsylvania where my whole intent, extended family was, but instead he kept me in Boston and has given me such an incredible family of God over the years that, that I find it just amazing and exciting to be his servant. And I find it amazing and exciting what God can do to an ordinary person like myself. There's nothing exceptional about me. I was born in this little, I was born in Philadelphia, but I grew up in this little tiny town that's not even on a map um, in Pennsylvania. You know, I, I, I attended a church that was very missions-minded and taught us to know God and build a relationship with God. And, and um, at an early age, felt like God was calling me to, to really be his, his servant, his missionary had no idea how he could use somebody like myself. But the amazing thing is that Adonai, the master of our lives, 
can build a masterpiece out of anybody's life. And, and that truth has become more true to me as time moved on. And I think that one of the things I want to really emphasize today is that we not only rebuild lives and we not only carry the message of salvation, but Jesus asked us to make disciples. And what I've discovered over my lifetime is that God can make the most amazing disciples out of the most broken and hurting people. Place of Promise is a place where people come and they come thinking that they're coming because they're very broken and hurting. But the real reason they come is because God chooses them to be there. Because they don't know him. Their, their lives are shattered and broken. They're thirsty and hungry for something, but they just don't know what. And they've sought for it in every way, shape, and form to try to satisfy that longing. And in, in doing so, they and their parents and the next generation before that have have caused brokenness and shattered lives and shattered families, shattered societies. But we have the answer to what will satisfy that longing at Place of Promise. And he brings these people, and they're, they're, they're my people. They're his people. And he's called them by name, and they're his. And he, and he recreates them, and he makes them into disciples. We now have, Place of Promise has grown. It used to be just me and maybe one or two other people kind of trying to run the show, but we now have four houses and we have a Kids of Promise program and we have a mentor training program. And we have actually four people on staff right now, including Sanai, who um, started out as a resident and now are real true disciples of Christ acting as staff ministry staff at Place of Promise, which I think is amazing. And God has brought people to Place of Promise from 59 different countries. Little Place of Promise has collected people from all around the world. So I didn't have to go all around the world. God brought them all to me. <laughs> so let's look at what we can learn from, from and I'm going to tell you all the, all the words that I think we can learn. And then I'm going to go back and kind of elaborate on it as long as I got time. And Sanaya is going to be my timekeeper over here. So if you see her waving her hands, that's trying to tell me to shush. <laughs> the first thing is that we have to have a passion. If you're not passionate about being on your mission, you might as well not be on the mission because you need to have a passion to keep you going. It's like the gasoline in your car. You got to have a passion, right? The second thing is you got to remember what your purpose is. It's very easy to be distracted when you're rebuilding broken lives and carrying the message and making disciples. It's really easy to be distracted by all the brokenness around you and the needs around you instead of sticking to our purpose of really helping that person come to know and build a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and become a disciple themselves. We also need to be penitent. And I, I think that's, that's a tough one for some of us. You know, we, you can start thinking that you're, you're doing a little better than everybody else. You know, when, you, when, when I do take interviews sometimes with people and I hear the, the, how shattered their lives are and the pain and the suffering and the sin that has 
just taken them into such bondage for so long and their parents before that and their grandparents before that. And I think it's, it would be easy to start thinking how repulsive that sin is. And it would be easy to kind of separate from the sinners over here and think that we're the righteous over here. Maybe you don't suffer from that problem, but I think it's really important when we're carrying the message and when we're building disciples that we also realize that how, what sinners we are. And Nehemiah teaches us that because Nehemiah comes before God and he confesses the sins of himself and the sins of his people that has gotten them into this predicament that they're in. And then we have to, we must always praise God. It's easy when you're surrounded by the brokenness to get sucked into the brokenness. It's like quicksand. It can suck you in. But if we praise God, it lifts us up. Praise God. Praise God. Remember who he is. Remember how powerful he is. Remember his strength. Remember his joy. Remember how good he is. And all of a sudden, the light shining again in your darkness. Absolutely pray first. There's no way, no way that any of us can make disciples or carry the message or be on a mission without prayer. We've got to depend on God. God's the one that does the work, not us. And when things start going bad, I say, okay, God, well, this is your thing. You're doing this. He does things differently sometimes than I would have designed it. <laughs> but it's good to step back and let God be the be the orchestrator of our lives and the orchestrator of our mission. Next, we also have to be pleasant. We must be pleasant in what we're doing. I, I, I find it difficult to th wonder why people would think that anybody would want to come to know God and Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord if I'm walking around miserable all the time complaining all the time, looking at all the troubles of the world and talking about all my troubles and all my problems. And who would want that? You know? I want to, Nehemiah says he went before the king and he asks for all this stuff to, to help him go rebuild the wall. And it says, the king says, hey, wait a second. You were never sad in my presence before. Now, he was in captivity. He was in bondage. He was a slave to the king. He was the cupbearer, meaning he had to taste the wine and see if he dropped dead before they gave it to the king. So it wasn't an easy job. But he, but he did it with, with great reverence and pleasure, and he did it with a smile on his face. So that this time when he finally comes before the king after years of serving the king and he looks sad, the king says, something's wrong here. You're sad today. It must be a sadness of the heart. Right? We need to have a sadness of our heart, but we need to be able to be pleasant in our everyday life and show some joy. We need to be a joyful people, not a bunch of people running around looking like we've been defeated. Also remember that we are part of a people. You're not going to do your mission alone. 
Nehemiah goes and he, after the reading that we had this morning, he goes and he collects a whole bunch of people to rebuild this wall together. He does not do it alone. And each person has their role and everybody does their role. And every once in a while he blows the trumpet and everybody comes together for prayer and praise of God and to remind themselves that God is in control, that God's rebuilding, not them. And that's what we do. We blow the trumpet and we all come together, right? And then we go on our own and we all have our role for building and, and working together. Some supply resources, some supply manpower, some supply prayer, some, you know, we all have our role on this mission that we're all on together because Jesus sent us all on this mission, not just a few of us. We also have to remember that we will be persecuted. People will come against you. People will come against the gospel. People will come against your mission. But don't, let, don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't let it scare you. God is in control, and God's bigger than anything or anyone that can come against you. Then also remember that we're just passing through this life. Jesus says we're going to have trials and tribulations. He doesn't say, I'm going to make this life all wonderful for you here, this side of heaven. This side of heaven, we're going to have to persevere. We're going to have to remind ourselves that we're just passing through. But we're prepared, finally. And we're helping others be prepared for that heaven that's waiting for us. Hallelujah. When we see Jesus face to face. And that new heaven and that new earth and that Jesus is coming again. And we hold on to that hope and we're prepared for it. And that helps us to know that we're just passing through. The Bible says it's like a woman in labor. You know, you go through all that pain and all that agony, but it's for the joy of that birth. It's for the joy of being united with Jesus forever, united with God in his new heaven and his new earth. Okay, so now we're gonna go back and talk about those things. All right, sound good? Everybody with me? <laughs> All right. Years ago, 50 years ago, my husband and I came up here for him to go to school, and, and, uh, for, and I was working as a nurse. I'm a nurse, and I got a job at Boston City Hospital because that's where I thought God wanted me to be. And we moved into uh, Roxbury. Had no idea where we were moving. I mean, it was, it was kind of, we were from Pennsylvania. We didn't know what we were doing. We moved into this little 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 house, second floor apartment of one of my patients had an apartment that he said he'd rent to us for $75 a month. That was actually a stretch for us at the time because <laughs> we had no money. They lost my first paycheck at Boston City Hospital and they only paid you every two weeks. So for the first month we were kind of living on a string. And I, I, I had this little hibachi that I, we lived in the second floor apartment that had an outside staircase. And I put the little hibachi out on the staircase and cut up a little, little can of spam. And I was cooking them on the hibachi. So I put my little spam out there and came back in, set my, my little tray up for me and my husband to have dinner. Went back out to turn over the spam and the spam was gone. And so I I said, you know, I'm thinking, I'm from a little town. I'm thinking a raccoon or a skunk or something got my spam. So I put more out there, the rest of my can, 
And I came back in and went back out, and it was gone again. I said, okay, now wait a second. I gotta figure out what happened to my spam. Went down the staircase, the wooden staircase, and underneath the staircase was a little eight-year-old boy, Tudor man. Tudor man and I became family after that day. The Tudor man was sitting there eating my spam because he was hungry. Because he was the youngest of 14 children, his mother had died and his father had gone to prison and they condemned the house that they all lived in. And so he and his 13 brothers and sisters were living in the street. And he was the youngest, he was only eight and he was out there by himself eating my spam. And that moved me like Nehemiah wept and mourned over the brokenness that moved my heart. It moved my heart to the point where I, I, I knew I had, I had an answer. I knew that I couldn't fix all the brokenness, the outside circumstantial stuff. But I knew that that hunger went deeper than that for that spam. That hunger went deep into the heart of that little boy. He wanted somebody to care about him. He wanted somebody to guide him. He wanted somebody to give him hope. He wanted somebody to, to cherish him, to think that the world was a better place because he was there. And that's why God just ignited that passion in me. And that passion has kept me going for 50 years because it's not easy to keep going because the pain and the sorrow and the mourning continues, but it, it moves you in your heart and it moves you to a positive place when you give it to God. When you pray and you fast and you bring that brokenness to God and, and God says, bring me to that little boy, help him to know me. And so we started having Bible buddies in Roxbury and that later when I founded Place of Promise, we changed it to call it Kids of Promise today and the kids come and they're hungry, and they're thirsting. And it's not just to help them with their, with their food and their clothes and their, their gifts at holidays. That's all important, to help them know that they're loved and cherished. But the real thing is helping them know that Jesus loves them, that they too can be a follower of Jesus, that they can be new creations in Christ, and that no matter what they've been through, they can be somebody because Jesus loves them and they are somebody in the eyes of God. They too are created in the eyes of God, in the image of God. You have to remember your purpose. You know, it, it can get so you want to fix everything. You want to wipe out poverty. But Jesus says, you know, unfortunately, there's going to always be poverty. Right? The poor will always be with us. But one of the things I know now that I've been poor, <laughs> living in Roxbury, and in the, trust me, we, when, we both, when Jeff graduated, we both went to work for the Emmanuel Gospel Center, and our combined salary, the two of us together, made $4,000 a year. So yeah, we, 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 and we had everybody kind of moving into our little house with us, into our little apartment until finally we got too big and we had all the kids in the neighborhood coming in for Bible buddies. And so we finally just decided we needed to buy a house so we could have more people 
come and live with us and do more things. And so, but we needed it right around the same neighborhood so the same kids could keep coming and the same adults and everybody. And I could, I was everybody's neighborhood nurse. I started a, a missionary neighborhood nursing ministry that I modeled after what I saw nurses doing in third world countries. And I became everybody's nurse. And within a year, I'd been in everybody's home, taking care of everybody and everybody um, kind of knew me as, as the nurse. So I, um, we bought this house. And I remember my husband said, I found a house. He's all excited. So I said, okay, where is it? It's right one block over. So I drove down that street. It was the raggediest house on the street. You know, but, uh, and, and it, it cost $5,000. And we didn't even have $5,000 and the bank wouldn't lend us any money because they said they, they were redlining that, that district and that area. And so they wouldn't lend us the money and we weren't making anything. So, but God provided. And my aunt ended up giving us a couple thousand. One of the nurses I worked with at Boston City gave us a couple thousand and didn't want to be paid back. And a pastor down in Cape Cod gave us a thousand and he was the only one that we paid back. So we, I always say we got our house for a thousand dollars. And God used that home. We lived in there for the next 30 years in that house. And we had a little church in that house and we had Bible buddies in that house. And, and we had people that were sick and dying when, the, when a lot of people in the street would get sick and they had no place to be and I would just move them in with us. And, so, and people, you know, family's house, their apartment burned and they, there was 10 of them. And we just moved them in because they had no place to live. I went and got some kids, but you have to, you know, this, these kids came to Bible Buddies because the other kids brought them and there were, we had like 50, 60 kids that came because there was no place else to go, you know? So they came and they learned about Jesus. And they learned about that somebody loved them and somebody had a plan for their life. These one family came and, and the, I took the kids home. And uh, afterwards I said, let me, let me go home so I can meet your mother and stuff. So I, we went home together and um, it was dark and there was, they lived in this house that was, there was no front door, no windows, no electricity, no running water. The only thing that was on still was the gas and the, there was a stove in the back kitchen and the gas burners worked. So there was a little light coming from way back and they said, you gotta get down. They had blankets hanging in there cause it was cold. And they said, you got, we gotta crawl because the, the rats and the cats and the dogs and stuff come in here. So we crawled through that house and we came out to the, to the kitchen. And there was a mattress on the floor with a woman with her new six-month-old baby on the, laying on the floor. There's no way that I could just leave them there like that. So I packed them all in my car and brought them home. And about 25 years later, I had a woman living with us that was dying of AIDS and she needed a blood test done. And I drew the blood myself and took it to the hospital because she was living with us took it to the lab in the hospital and the, they, they wouldn't, the, the receptionist wouldn't accept it because I hadn't done the pre-registration or something right. And so she didn't want to do the test. And all of a sudden I heard this, this voice saying, 
Kitty, they used to call me Kitty because that's how they pronounced my name. K-I-D-D -D is my last name, so they said Kitty. <laughs> She's like, Kitty, is that you? The, the, the head of the lab was one of the little girls that had moved in 25 years before that. She's like, come on, I'll take care of you. And she said, you know, I have, I have a daughter and we go to church, we love Jesus. And it's all because you taught us to know him. It's all because of Jesus that I am who I am today. Because I was lost out there. We were lost, we were suffering, we were alone. But you were on a mission. God puts that passion in your heart and he keeps you going. And we have to be able to keep on keeping on. We got to be able to persevere. We got to be able to pray. And she said, you know, you, you taught me how to pray. You taught me how to pray about everything. You taught me to know him, to build a relationship with him. You taught me that I'm never alone, no matter what I'm facing, I'm never alone because God's presence is always with me. Finally, let me just say that it's important that we are penitent. And I keep on telling you stories, but I'll tell you this last one, because I think you get the message about all the other stuff. I was, there was a, a woman who was in the back hallway of, a, of one of the three-decker houses, and she was getting ready to give birth to her baby. And there was four or five other people there, and they were all smoking crack together. And she was actually in labor, getting ready to give birth to the baby, and she kept saying, give me a hit, I need a hit on that pipe, I need, you know, this is what she wanted, was a hit on that pipe. In my self-righteous self, I thought, how could she be like that? How could she do that? How could she be more interested in getting a hit on that pipe, crack pipe than give birth to her baby? And I, you know, it really, I was, because I was so appalled and so repulsed by what was going on, I failed in my mission. I failed in my purpose. I failed to pray. I failed to be pleasant. I was not pleasant. I did what I had to do. You know, all the tasks involved. And sometimes we can do our tasks, but our heart's not in it. And I went home that night and I got in the bathtub. That's what I used to do to restore my soul. I had, I'd have a bubble bath at 2 o'clock in the morning when everything in my neighborhood was quiet. My kids were all sleeping. I have four that I gave birth to, by the way and a multitude of others. And um, the Holy Spirit started working in my heart. And he said, you know, I need you, I need you to look in tight your heart. I need you to look at your soul. And so I did. I got it, I got out and I and I started to pray. And I said, you know, just open up my heart. Let me, let me see. Let me see what's in me. And the sin that I saw in me was just as ugly as what I had seen in her. Just as self-centered, just as unrighteous, just as much a separation from 
my mission and my Jesus as anything that I'd seen in her. And I needed to, to be cleansed. I needed to be forgiven. I needed to be changed. To be able to be like God and love the sinner and see the potential for everybody to become a disciple of Jesus. To be repulsed by the sin, but not the sinner. To hate the sin, but not the sinner. To love the sinner. To be willing to lay down my life the way Jesus asks us to lay down our lives for each other. Not just for the righteous. Because there is no one righteous. Not one. And that taught me something that night. And I needed to learn that. Because I think sometimes... Sin can not only, my sin can separate me from God, but somebody else's sin can too if I identify the person by their sin. You know, that's what Satan wants us to do. That's what we do. We identify each other by, oh, that's a thief. He's a, she's a prostitute. She's a drug addict. She's, you know. Now, we're all creations of God created in his image. And that redeemer can redeem anybody's life and satisfy anybody's longing and hunger and thirst because he is the savior of the world, not just me, but all of us. I challenge us all today to keep the passion, to be penitent, to keep the purpose, to praise God, to be pleasant in our, in our everyday life, and to lift him up. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.